If you have a Bible, go to John chapter 3 this morning. John chapter 3. This is a passage of Scripture that is probably as fitting as any for Educator's Day. And I want us to uh, examine just a portion of John's Gospel here. And here's what we're going to find. Uh, We're going to find here in John chapter 3 that a teacher teaches a teacher. So this is the occasion when Jesus, the master teacher, has another educator or teacher that approaches him for some learning, and Jesus is going to give him a lesson, I dare say the greatest lesson that that anyone could ever learn. So uh, John chapter 3 is where we're at, and we're quickly going to cover half of this chapter this morning. So we will uh, just cover the the surface level of this. There's a lot that we could say, but I'm going to begin by profiling the two teachers. So we're going to start in John chapter 3 by looking at these two teachers that have a conversation, and Jesus goes through this lesson here in John chapter 3. So if you look at verse number 1 of John chapter 3, we're introduced to a man named Nicodemus. The Bible says that there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. So that's just a few words, but it tells us a lot about this man. So Nicodemus, the Bible says, is a member of the Pharisees. So the Pharisees, those would be the uh, religious elites. They would be the separatists. They would be uh, very exclusive in who they allow into their sect and, and what they do or don't do. This is a man, because he's a Pharisee, all Pharisees were deeply devoted. He is committed to the Mosaic Law. He knows the Mosaic Law. He would be a man who uh, was a strict observer of that law. When it comes to things like the Sabbath day or holy days or tithing or ceremonial cleanliness or dieting and uh, fasting, this is a man who has a a well-developed religious conscience. This is a man who has a well-developed moral code, and he lives by that moral code. And the Bible says he's not just a Pharisee. But Nicodemus is a ruler of the Jews. So being a ruler of the Jews, that would be that Nicodemus is a member of the Sanhedrin. There are 70 men in the nation of Israel who rule over, preside over larger issues. The closest comparison I could give it, although it's not a perfect comparison, would be the Supreme Court. The Nicodemus is a member of that. So here is a man that is deeply religious, who's a ruler, who has some authority, who's respected, Uh, rabbinical tradition tells us that Nicodemus is one of the three richest men in Jerusalem. So this is the profile of this man, and we're introduced to him, then we're introduced to, uh, verse number two, a man named Jesus. So this man, Nicodemus, the same came to Jesus by night and said unto him, Rabbi, we know that thou art a teacher, come from God, for no man can do these miracles that thou doest except God be with him. So Here we're introduced to Jesus, called the rabbi or the teacher. That word teacher is the word didaskalos. And Nicodemus says, we know that you're not just a teacher, but you're a teacher that's sent from God. And we know this is obvious to us that this is the case because of the miracles that you're doing. No one could do those miracles. No one could heal the blind. No one could could cleanse the leper. No one could uh, cast out devils. No one could do these things if you were a teacher sent from God. And what's interesting, though, is that Jesus calls Nicodemus, in verse number 10, he calls Nicodemus a teacher. So look at verse number 10. We'll cover the, the other verses here in just a moment. But verse number 10, Jesus answered and said unto him, to Nicodemus, Art thou a master of Israel, and knowest not these things? That word master is the same word that's translated as teacher about Jesus. It's didaskalos. 
that Jesus said, look, you're a master, you're a teacher, you should know these things. So here we have, in John chapter 3, one teacher, a man, Nicodemus, who is respected, who is religious, who is rich, who is the finest specimen of a natural man that you could ever hope to find. Nicodemus undoubtedly is cultured, he's educated, he is respected, and he comes to another teacher, the master teacher, Jesus, and says, Jesus, I know that you're a teacher sent from God. And you don't see a question mark in verse number two, but you find that inevitably Nicodemus was searching for a lesson. He was searching for information. He was wanting heavenly information that give me something, Jesus. So this morning I want us to see when the teacher taught the teacher and what the teacher taught the teacher. And there's enough in 21 verses, honestly, to cover a year's worth of sermons. There's a ton there. But this morning, we're just going to skim the surface and get the, the major content of what Jesus told Nicodemus. So I want us to see, first of all, in the first 12 verses, we're, we'll find what I would call the tragedy. And this is what Nicodemus confuses. And we're going to find that Jesus attempts to give a lesson. He attempts to teach the teacher and Nicodemus is going to be deeply befuddled by this. He will, he will end in verse number 12. He's dazed. He's confused. He is, he's absolutely bewildered at what Jesus tells him. So we'll pick it up in verse number 2. The Bible says Nicodemus comes by night. Uh, theologians have, have raced their motors to try to figure out why Nicodemus came by night. I don't know why. It may be as simple as he just couldn't sleep. And he just decided instead of counting sheep, I'm just going to go to the master shepherd and, and I'll find him there and get the answers I need. We don't know why, but he approaches Jesus by night, the Bible says. And in verse number three, Jesus is going to begin teaching. And Jesus says in verse number three, verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, a couple things in this verse. Number one is that Jesus begins with verily, verily. And he's going to do that three times in this passage. It's very typical for Jesus to do this. What does, what does verily, verily mean? What Jesus is saying verily means this is true. This is acceptable. And when you do a double verily, 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 you're saying this is, this is absolutely true. This is absolutely acceptable. What Jesus is saying is that, Nicodemus, I'm going to tell you something. I'm going to teach you. I'm going to give you a lesson. And I'm going to testify in advance that this is true. I'm going to tell you up front, this is authoritative. This is truthful. This is something that you need to sink your teeth into. Now, this goes against the uh, tradition of the day. In, in this day and age, in order for you to be attested of, you needed to have a witness that would testify on your behalf. But Jesus is circumventing that, and he's saying, Nicodemus, I'm going to tell you up front, I don't need a witness to testify of me. I can tell you with authority, verily, verily, this is true. And here's what's true. You must needs be born again. Now, Jesus starts a teaching honestly with a shot across the bow of Nicodemus' heart. He gives Nicodemus words that are tough to wrestle with, and he's, he's not going to stop in, in this verse. He's going to continue the, the whole uh, section here. He's going to give him words time and time again that are, that are tough to wrestle with. Jesus is pretty blunt and to the point in this passage of Scripture. But he tells him straight away, Nicodemus, you must needs be born again. So what is, what is Jesus doing here? Jesus is telling him, you have to be born again, and not just be born again, but born again so that you can see the kingdom of God. What, what is Jesus saying? Jesus is saying, Nicodemus, religious man, respected man, rich man, cultured man, educated man, you need to do something in order to see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus, we could say it this way, in order to spend eternity with God, in order to go to heaven, you could phrase it that way, be very appropriate, in order to do that, you need to do something, Nicodemus. What he's telling him is, Nicodemus, you lack. 
Nicodemus, you're going to fall short. Nicodemus, there's something in your life that you have not done that you need to do in order to secure this. There's a truth that you don't understand. There's something that you have not done in your life that you have to accept, and you need to do this, and you must be born again. So for Jesus to tell this man, Nicodemus, you are falling short, you need to do something, that is something that would immediately put Nicodemus back on his heels. This is something that would challenge this man who honestly would be a man that the rest of the Jewish community would look to to say, he knows a lot. He understands a lot. He has it together. He's someone we should look to for teaching. And Jesus says straight out of the gate, look, Nicodemus, there's something that you need to do. You need to be born again. So let me stop for a moment and just say this. I have heard people throughout the years say, well, they're a born-again Christian. Meaning, and the thought is that if we, we could take all of Christianity, put them in this big pot right here, we could take out a ladle and there'd be this, this smaller portion of Christians that are born-again Christians. There's Christians in general, then there's a, this elite group of Christians and they're born-again Christians. Frankly, that's a farce. That's not true. Saying born-again Christian is redundant. They're synonymous. It's like saying I'm going to the tooth dentist or you're a female woman, okay? So born-again and Christian, are those are the same. You cannot be a Christian without being born again. You cannot be born again and not be a Christian. They are, they are the same thing. The Bible phrases be, being a Christian in a lot of different ways. You could say, I'm saved. I'm a child of God. I'm a follower of Jesus. I'm born again. You could put that a lot of different ways. It's all essentially saying the same thing. Hey, I'm a Christian and I'm a, I'm a Christ follower. And what Jesus is saying is, Nicodemus, you need to do this. And Nicodemus naturally responds with a statement like, I have to be born again with just kind of some simple uh, sarcasm, I think. Verse number four. Nicodemus saith unto him, How can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? I think that drips with sarcasm. And Nicodemus says, what do, what do you want me to do, Jesus? You want me to go back inside of my mother and be born again? This is the, this is the craziest thing that, that I've ever heard. How is, how is this possible? And Jesus is going to try his best to elaborate on what he meant by being born again. He put out the truth. Now he's going to try to distill this truth and tell him what he meant. Verse number 5 and 6. Jesus answered and said, once again, verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. So he gives a, a fuller disclosure here. Verse number 6. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Now, if you've been around church any length of time, you've probably heard verse number 5 talked about, and, and many have strained at that word water. What does that mean, I have to be born of water and of the Spirit? Does that mean that I have to be baptized? Is he referring to John's baptism here? Is he referring to water as the Word of God? What's he talking about? Honestly, it's, it's so utterly simple. Jesus, Nicodemus just said, look, do I have to be born physically twice? And Jesus is going to respond and say, no, you don't. You have to be born physically and spiritually. You have to be born of water and of the Spirit. We would know, okay, if a pregnant woman went to the uh, doctor to have the baby, the nurse would start to fill out the paperwork that takes utterly too long, maybe even put you in triage, and one of the first questions out of that nurse's mouth is going to be, has your water broke? We would, we would see that as synonymous with giving birth. And Jesus says, you must be born of water and of the Spirit. Then he elaborates, in case it wasn't clear enough, that which is born of flesh is flesh, that which is born of Spirit is Spirit. So, no, Nicodemus, I'm not telling you to be born physically twice. I'm telling you, you need to be born physically once, and you need to be born spiritually once. Flesh is flesh, spirit is spirit. And, and this is what Jesus is saying. He's saying, look, uh, a question for us. Did any of us get in this room today, on this earth today, without a physical birth? No. 
we all went through a physical birth to get here. Jesus is saying in order to enter heaven, then you need a spiritual birth. Just like you need physical to get to earth, you need spiritual to get to heaven. And he says this to Nicodemus, verse number 7. Marvel not that I said unto thee, ye must be born again. Apparently Nicodemus must have had this look on his face that every educator in the room knows what this look is like. That's just like, I understand what you're saying, and I'm trying to connect these dots in my brain right now, but I'm just not, I'm just not getting there. And Jesus says, look, Nicodemus, don't, don't marvel. Don't scratch your head at this. Don't, don't think that this is some, some scary thing. We've all, we've all been there, right, where you're trying to convey a new concept, and you're trying to get a mind or a heart to grasp that new concept. Whether that is you're teaching a kindergartner and you're trying to teach them how to tie their shoes. I don't care if you use one rabbit and tie it around. If you use two rabbits and go together. If you use seven turkeys to try to tie their shoe. Whatever you do, you're trying to teach them, but they're, they're struggling to get it. Maybe you're teaching an elementary age student and they're struggling to get how to find a square root or how to multiply or how to add or fractions. Fractions, those things are pesky sometimes. And they just struggle and they're staring at you. Maybe you teach junior hires and you're trying to tell them to put on your deodorant day after day after day and they're just struggling to grasp that concept. We've been there, right? Where you're trying to teach a truth but the look you're getting back is just, I'm not understanding the truth. I'm trying to wrestle with this, but I'm struggling to do. And this is where the tragedy comes in. The tragedy is that Jesus is doing his best to explain a spiritual truth to Nicodemus. And Nicodemus, he's not getting it. He's not connecting the dots. He's trying, but he's just not there. He's confused. You say, why is, why is that tragic? That happens all the time where people don't understand concepts. Well, it, to not understand 2 plus 2 is one thing, but to not understand what you need in order to go to heaven, to not understand a spiritual new birth, that's the greatest of all truths, and that's tragic if you don't understand that. That's a truth that you don't want to miss. Miss English, miss science, miss math. I'm, for, I'm actually for you being educated, but if you miss that, that's fine as long as you understand a new birth, as long as you understand what Jesus is trying to say. This is the grandest of all truths. He says, Nicodemus, you must be born again. And he's going to try to elaborate one more time on what is this born again stuff. What is this, this spiritual birth? Born of flesh is flesh, spirit is spirit. What, what does this look like? How would one do this? He says in verse number 8, The wind bloweth where it listeth. And now heareth the sound thereof, but canst not tell from whence it cometh and whither it goeth. He says, Nicodemus, okay, let me, let me give you an illustration here. The wind. You know the wind? The, the wind, it blows wherever it wants. You ever try to control the wind? You, you can't do it, can you? The, it blows where it wants, but we get to hear the sound of it. We get to see the effects of it. It's invisible, and, and we don't know from where, when it came, or how it came, or where it came, or even where it's going to go next, but, but we, we know this. We know that we can see the effects. And he takes that analogy, and he says this at the end of verse number 8, so is everyone that is born of the Spirit. He says, likewise, a spiritual birth is by the Spirit of God. That it's tough to actually describe this Nicodemus. It's something like the wind that it's invisible and, and you, you can't even necessarily sense w when it's coming or how it's coming or where it's going or what's happening, but you can see the effects of it. You can know that it happened. You can know that the tornado was there. You may not know when the tornado is going to strike. You may not know where the tornado is going to go next, but you know when it was there. And just like that, the wind, the spirit, Nicodemus, 
This is the, the new birth. This is a spiritual birth. This is by the Spirit of God. And frankly, I can say this. This, this verse right here, verse number 8, connects deeply with, with my own heart. Because I was a kid that was born into church, like week number one in the church nursery, and, and every Sunday after that. I was a kid who was, who was very religiously educated. That my parents, I'm thankful for this, not a criticism at all, but my parents, we, we read the Bible together. We prayed together. We said grace for meals. We went to church all the time. I was in the Sunday school class. I can remember as a, as a five-year-old boy, I'd memorized all of the books in order, and I got this little toy. You push this button, and this dolphin would kick, and rings would go up, and you try to catch the rings in the dolphin's nose. I wanted that toy so bad, and I memorized every single, not all of the content of the books of the Bible, just, you know, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. I, I, I can remember all of that as a kid. Prayed a lot, went to church a lot. But as a middle school-aged young man, the Spirit of God began to blow, began to convict my heart and work on my heart and began to, to squeeze it, in essence. That's the only way I can know how to describe it. That he began to tell me, you need something, you're lacking you're, you cannot earn your way to heaven. You can't do this on your own. It's not good enough. You need to put your faith in Jesus. And I, I have no explanation for how that happened or why that happened outside of the Spirit of God began to move on the inside. And I honestly, I struggle to even describe that to people or to give them what that's like. All I can say is that if, if you're a Christian in the room and you've been born again, you know what that's like. You know what I'm talking about. You know what it's like for the Spirit of God to to talk to you and to convict you. And it's something that I don't know that I can accurately describe it, but I can say when it happens, you can, you can see the effects. You can know that, that that has happened. And what Jesus is attempting to do for Nicodemus in these first few verses is he's, he's attempting to say, hey, Nicodemus, you need to be born again. You need to be a Christian. And, and a Christian is not just a nicer person, Nicodemus. A Christian is a is a new creature. It's a, it's a whole new birth. Adrian Rogers had, used to say that a Christian is not a tadpole who turns into a frog. A Christian is more like a frog who turns into a prince by the kiss of grace. And that's, that's the new birth. That is, it's, it's, a whole, it's a whole new deal. It's not just me becoming a better person. And Nicodemus is going to respond one more time to this concept of being born again. What's that? Okay, it's, it's not. It's flesh and spirit. It's uh, the spirit of God moves. Okay. Verse number nine, Nicodemus answered and said unto him, how can these things be? She said, Jesus, how is this possible? What? I'm trying to get this and I'm, I'm trying to wrap my head around this, but, but how can this be? And, and Nicodemus stands there still confused. And Jesus responds in verse number 10, Art thou a master of Israel and knowest not these things? Nicodemus, aren't you supposed to be some master teacher guy? Aren't you supposed to know a lot of the Bible? Aren't you religious? Aren't you, shouldn't you, shouldn't you know this? And he doesn't leave it there. He's going to give him two more verses here. Verse number 11 and 12. Verily, verily, I say unto thee, verse 11, we speak that we do know and testify that we have seen. He uses the we there. And then he points the finger at Nicodemus and says, and ye Receive not our witness. He says to them, Nicodemus, you know the facts. Okay, you, you came to me. Remember the beginning of this conversation? You came to me and said, teacher, rabbi, you're sent from God. You do miracles. Teach me something. Nicodemus, you, you know that I'm a teacher sent from God. You said it yourself. 
You know what people have been saying about me, about the miracles that I'm doing, that I'm not just some part of some rabbinical school somewhere, but that, that I am, I'm, I'm different. I'm, I'm really who you're hoping to be the Messiah. You, you can tell that there is this, uh, that you have this attraction to me of sorts. And, and Nicodemus, you know this, but you're not receiving the witness. You're not, you're not buying in wholesale, Nicodemus. You're struggling to put your faith in me wholeheartedly. You're struggling to actually accept this. You, and one, on one hand, you know that it's true. On the other hand, you're resisting it. And you're, and you're wanting to question. And then he says in verse number 12, if I have told you earthly things and you believe not, how shall you believe if I tell you heavenly things? Nicodemus, I often call him Nicky. That's my nickname for him just in my own mind. But Nicky, I'm bottom shelfing this for you, buddy. I'm trying to put it right down there for you to get it. And if you're not getting this, how are you going to get any more? If you can't do two plus two, it's not time for calculus, Nicodemus. This is, I'm, I'm doing my best to, to give this to you. I'm giving my best to, to help you here. So here, Nicodemus stands, a bit taken back. He's gotten more than he's bargained for in this short conversation with Jesus. Back on his, on his heels, dazed and confused, head spinning, wondering how is this possible? What is he talking about? Okay, I see what he's talking about. How can that be? Struggling to actually attach the belief and attach to the witness and say, okay, I'm in, I believe, I'm, I'm following you. And, and there Nicodemus stands, confused. And if the story ended here, it'd be tragic. Because he would be a man that left just with question marks circling his mind. But thankfully, the story does not end there, and Jesus does what any great educator does. He takes someone who is not grasping the concept, and he's going to back up, and he's going to do his best to give it a different way. He's going to do his best to take a, an illustration or a concept, a story that Nicodemus has previously heard, and that Nicodemus knows, and he's going to try to build on that and tell him and build an analogy to what he's saying. And he's going to start in verse number 13, trying a different way to give this truth. And here is the nutshell of these, of these five verses. The truth is why Jesus came. Nicodemus, here's what you're confusing, but I'm going to tell you, and we're going to back up. I'm going to tell you very simply now. Here is why I came. And he begins this truth in verse number 13. No man hath ascended up to heaven, but he that came down from heaven, even the Son of Man which is in heaven. What's that mean? Oftentimes you find John in his gospel when he writes of Jesus making and, and giving witness to the claims of exclusivity that Jesus said. And Jesus makes no bones about that. He says very clearly and very plainly that I am the only way to the Father. I'm the only way to heaven. It has to go through me. And here you find one of these claims that Jesus is essentially saying in a nutshell, there is no one like me. Look, who has descended from heaven? Talking about uh, I, I, Jesus, God in heaven, came down, God in the flesh. This is the virgin birth. This is a Christmas story. Emmanuel, God with us. Who has descended and who he's bookending his earthly ministry. I descended and I'm going to ascend. After the resurrection, ascend into heaven. He's bookended and saying, look, the descension, the ascension, who, who's done that? Only me, right? That's the only answer to the question. It's, it's only me. And Jesus is saying, I can speak of heavenly things because heaven is my home. He, he says, look, this is me. The, the Son of Man, the Son of God, Jesus Christ. And he says in verse number 14, and this person, me, descending from heaven, going to us, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, 
That's, that's the master moment right there. Jesus knows Nicodemus is a Pharisee, and Nicodemus knows the Old Testament like the back of his hand. Jesus knows Nicky will know about Moses. He'll know all of it. He'll know the, he'll know the whole story. He could recite it off the top of his head beginning to end. And he'll know that the children of Israel were bitten by serpents and that they were dying and that there was a moment of faith where God told Moses to put a brazen serpent on a pole and lift it up and those who looked to that would live. We even know this today in our modern culture. If you look on the side of any ambulance, what will you find? A pole with a serpent wrapped around it to represent the healing power. So that story has perpetuated for centuries even down to our culture. Jesus knows Nicodemus will know this story well, and he says, let me draw on that and build on that. You know how Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness? And Nicodemus knew all that, looked, that went with that, that they looked and believed in faith and they lived. And he says, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. That's, okay, that's an analogy, that's me. And Jesus is foretelling the death on the cross that he will endure, that he will be lifted up, that he will be crucified on that pole. And he continues in verse number 15. Here is, okay, here's the ascension and dissension, the bookend of my earthly ministry. Here's why I'm coming. Moses lifted up the serpent. I'm going to be lifted up. And the point of all of that is, verse 15, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. So Nicodemus, the point of my death on the cross, the point of my coming, the point of all of it, the point of me asking you to believe, to receive my witness, to believe on me, the point of all of that is so that you will not perish, but have everlasting life. This is the, this is the redemption story that is, that is pervasive through the Bible. That Jesus Christ comes, dies on a cross for us to redeem us, to save us from our sins so that we would not perish. Speaking of hell, hell is often referred to as perishing or uh, the second death or death, but have everlasting life. Does that mean that we get to live forever and we found the fountain of youth and that we live on earth forever? No, it's about heaven. Eternal life, everlasting life, often used of heaven. He says, look, the whole point of this is to save you from your sin. We'll see later in the chapter, to save you from condemnation. The point of this is so that you can have the kingdom of heaven. You can go to heaven. This is why I'm dying, that you would believe on me. And if that wasn't clear enough, Jesus encapsulated it all with possibly the greatest verse in all of the Bible, John 3, 16. We've all seen the signs held up on the side of the road or in the, the, uh, behind the, the backstop of the baseball game, John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him, once again, should not perish but have everlasting life. There's no verse in the Bible that sums up the entirety of the Bible better than right there. God loved us and love always gives. That he gave his only begotten Son so that Whosoever, any of us, you can put your own name there so that if Mark will believe on him, so that if Bob will believe on him, so that if Susie will believe on him, they will not perish but have everlasting life. Not perish once again, hell, have everlasting life, heaven. This is the whole, the whole, the new birth, the being born again, the spiritual birth, the believing on Jesus. It all boils down to this. It's, it's a belief in Jesus Christ and what he did for me so that I could go to heaven, that we cannot earn our way or work our way or get our way or, or hope that our good deeds and our own merit stand no chance of gaining us favor and gaining us a great standing with God. And Jesus Christ dies for our sins, but we must place our faith in him. And if 15 and if 16 weren't clear enough, Jesus gives verse number 17. 
For God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. I think God knew that there would be those that would say, well, this is God's all about condemnation. That how could, how could a good God send somebody to hell? He says, no, this is, not, this is not about the condemnation. This is about a salvation. This is about a rescuing from that condemnation. This is a, this is a rescue mission. This is me trying to save you, trying to help. This is what it's all about, Nicodemus. This is the truth. This is why I came. I came to die for you, that you would believe on me so that you could be born again. And then Jesus is going to, once again, not end it there, but he's going to give Nicodemus a, a test of sorts. He's going to give him an acid test to know, have I believed on Jesus or not? Okay, Nicodemus, here's the new birth. You have to do this. You need this. And this new birth, in case you, you're wondering, how, how do I get this? How am I born of the Spirit? It's a belief in Jesus Christ. And my, my death, I died for your sins. And even, we see later in the gospel that he's buried and he, and he raises from the dead. It's that belief. Believe it on me to save you. And so, how do I know if I've done this? What, what should I do? And he ends this, this pericope with verses 18 through 21. And he gives him this test. And here's the test. Nicodemus, here's who I'm condemning and here's who I'm not condemning. This is it. This is what it boils down to. Verse number 17. 18. He that believeth on him is not condemned. But he that believeth not is condemned already. Because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. He says, here's, <laughs> let me make this as plain as I possibly can, Nicodemus. I'm going to shoot straight with you. Believe on me, you're good. Don't believe, condemned. So that's it. Nicodemus, it's what, you, it's what you're going to do with me. You came to me. Your eyes have seen. Your mouth has said. You're a teacher sent from God. You've seen the miracles. You've, I've done enough. Nicodemus, you have to choose. Am I going to believe or am I not going to believe? This is Jesus saying, I, this is not about condemnation. I'm not coming to condemn people. People are condemned already. The world is a rebel planet gone astray and Jesus Christ is on a rescue mission to, to save them and to save us. And, and the Bible tells us clearly that we are already condemned. That in light of our sin, Romans 3, read it for yourself, it says so bluntly that we will stand before God and all the world will stand guilty and every mouth will be stopped. That there will be no excuse, there will be no wiggling out, there will be no but, yeah, I did this. There, it will, that's, that we are condemned already because of our sin. Jesus says there's no excuses here and it's all about what you do with me, Nicodemus. Verse number 19. And here's the condemnation. You're condemned already if you don't believe on me and here's the condemnation. One of the most pointed verses, frankly, in all of the Bible. And this is, this is a challenge. This is something to wrestle with. Verse 19. This is the condemnation. Here it is. Light is coming to the world, speaking of Jesus, and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. He says, here's what it is. Here's, if you don't believe on me and put your trust on me, condemnation and guilt, and that is because the light has come, but men loved their darkness, and they wanted their evil deeds. They didn't want to accept me. Isn't this the truth? Think, think about for a, for a moment. Think deep. That is so true. You ever have a 
friend, a brother, a sister, family member, relative, maybe you went to high school with them. And they do something that to the casual observer from the outsider looking in, you look at and you say, that was absolutely ridiculous. Why would they do that? Why would they throw their career away? Why would they throw their marriage away? Why would they be thrown into prison? Why would they do It makes no sense to me. Why in the world would they choose those evil deeds or that sin or that wrongdoing? Why would they do that? And we've all been there, right, where we've looked at that and said, this is absolutely illogical. But sin is never logic. Sin is lust. Sin is love. Sin is an, it's an emotional connection. It's I want this. It's not about it makes sense. And, and you can even think in your own life. We can all think of things that we've done in the past or that we've done maybe even yesterday, whatever it was, that now you get some perspective and you sit in a church service and you think to yourself, why did I do that and why did I do that and why did I say that and why did I act that way? It doesn't make any sense. It's not logical to me. Well, it's, it's love. It's lust. It's, it's a connection to the heart. And Jesus says, men choose to reject me because they love their evil deeds. They, they love their sin. Verse number 20. For everyone that doeth evil hateth the light, neither cometh to the light, lest his deeds should be reproved. And here's why they reject the light. Because their deeds will be seen for what they are. They'll be reproved, corrected. They'll have to change something. And they don't want to change. We don't want to change. This is why they're rejecting me. This is why they're trying to get away from me because they would see things differently then. Something would inevitably have to give and they don't want to. Haven't we, can you relate with this at all? I can. I can relate when the Spirit of God began to press on me. You need to believe in Jesus and you need to put your trust in him. And I resisted it for weeks, for months. I said, no, 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 no. And I resisted it. Why? Because it meant things would change. Inevitably, if I gave in and I put my trust and I became a follower of Jesus, it had to mean that, that something would change. And many look at their life and say, sure, I have a few bad habits, and maybe there's a couple skeletons in the closet that I want someone to, want someone to know. And yeah, I dabble with a little bit of sin here and there. And sure, if you knew what went through my mind on a daily basis, I would be utterly ashamed, but I'm okay. I don't, I don't want to change. I don't want something to give. I'm, I'm fine the way I am. I'm not that bad. And Jesus is as pointed as he's ever been in any conversation. And he says, people reject me because they don't want to change that stuff. And when you become a Christian, when you put your faith in Jesus, that stuff does change. And if it doesn't, eh, there's something wrong there. 1 John 3. Jesus says, this is, this is the condemnation. This is it. They will reject me, not believe on me, and they don't want to believe on me because they love their sin. Verse 21, last one. But he that doeth truth cometh to the light, and his deeds may be made manifest that they are wrought in God. What's, what's John saying there? What he's saying is this, this new birth, this being born again, this believing in Jesus, this salvation, this is more than a than a mental cognitive ascension to some truth that I, that I grasp in my mind and say, okay, I understand it. No, it, it goes deeper than that. It goes to the heart. It produces a life of commitment. You will come to the light. Your deeds will be made manifest and reproved, and then those will begin to change. And what he's saying is that this belief in me is going to be rooted in action. Jesus is not soft-selling Nicodemus. 
He's telling him that this will be this will be different for you if you want to do this. And then John moves to verse 22 and Nicodemus is gone. John goes to verse 22 and he says, after these things came Jesus and his disciples to the land of Judea. He moves on. And he leaves me and you sitting here wondering what happened to Nicodemus. Right? That's what I think. Jesus goes through this teaching in these moments that are beautiful and powerful and pointed and unbelievable, and you get to the end of it, and he gives all the truth to Nicodemus, and then John just walks away and starts writing about something else. And I'm sitting here thinking, what happened to the guy? Did he believe? Did he not believe? Did he walk away? Did he, did he decide to put his faith in Jesus, or did he keep it attached to the Mosaic law? What happened to him? Well, John, I guess as any good writer does, leaves us on a cliffhanger, and he comes back at the very end of the story and he tells us what happened to Nicodemus. Look at chapter 19 of, of John's gospel. If, if you don't have your Bible, we'll put this on the screen and you can see it. John circles back around at the very end and he says, here's what happened to Nicodemus. John 19, verse number 38. John's gospel is 21 chapters long. This is the end of 19, so it's towards the very end. Jesus has been crucified for the sins of the world. He is now taken down off the cross, and you find that Joseph of Arimathea is going to come and beg the body of Jesus so that he may give him a proper burial. John 19, verse 38. After this, Joseph of Arimathea being a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, and the Jews were feared because they would put you on a cross if you crossed them. For fear of the Jews, he besought Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him leave. He came, therefore, and he took the body of Jesus. Verse number 39, and there came also Nicodemus, which at the first came to Jesus by night. And Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes and about a hundred-pound weight. Then took they, both of them, the body of Jesus and wound it in linen clothes with spices as the manner of the Jews is to bury. What you find at the end of John's gospel is John comes back around and says, there's this disciple, Joseph. He went and he wanted the body of Jesus and he had a buddy with him, compadre, Nicodemus. And one that came to Jesus by night in John 3. And Nicodemus comes and he, he wants the body of Jesus. He too, we could only conclude, is a disciple and a follower. And he wants to give Jesus a proper burial and to treat his body with tenderness and care. And he brings a lot of spices and myrrh, and, and it's a lot of money he's going to give to Jesus. And you find that at the end of this gospel that Nicodemus believed. He decided to trust. He became born again. He became saved. Now, whether it was that night that he looked at Jesus and said, Jesus, I believe I'm going to follow you, whether it was the next day, whether it was the next week, the next month, I don't know. But all I know is this. After the, after the crucifixion of Jesus, you find Nicodemus coming with a compadre, Joseph of Arimathea, disciples coming to say, we want the body of Jesus. We want to treat it properly. That I believed. And this morning, it's a, honestly, it's a simple message because that's the core of the Bible. The core of the Bible can be summed up and Jesus dies and is buried and he raises from the dead for our sins so that we may have eternal life. It's all there in John chapter 3 and Nicodemus decided, I'm going to trust. I'm going to believe. I'm going to put my faith. This morning, if you have never done the same, I'm going to here for just a few moments have an invitation and invite you 
to do what Nicodemus the teacher did and to put your faith and your trust in Jesus Christ. Let's pray.